and welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And today's a very special book talk because it is our 50th recording. Um, so we have now been doing this uh, for a while, amazingly. Um, and we hope that it's a great resource uh, for everyone who's able to go back as well and see the recordings of these book talks. Um, and we have a full schedule of talks coming up. Uh, already booked through October, I think it is, so October 21. Um, and so we'll just continue doing it because we think it's absolutely fabulous to be able to talk to authors uh, like today's, Christine Kiner, who's Professor of Science, Technology and Society and History at Rochester Institute of Technology. And she'll be talking about her book, Deep Cut, Science, Power and the Unbuilt Interoceanic Canal. So I'll give it over to you, Christine. Hi, everyone. I'm very thankful to Dolly and Finarna for organizing this series and inviting me to speak and to you all for your time today. I'm speaking from Rochester, New York, on the unceded lands of the Seneca. Uh, respecting the tradition of not using PowerPoint slides takes me out of my comfort zone, but that's a good thing. And I'd like to emulate a few other recent speakers by using props to provide a little backstory. So first I'd like to share a few gorgeous molas I bought in Panama during my two trips there in 2011 and 2012. Uh, molas are textiles made by the indigenous Guna women as part of their clothing or for the tourist trade. Um, as, and as you can see here, mola art features geometrical designs, often stylized animals. Um, and as I was looking back through these, I realized that the, the abstract maze designs uh, just perfectly symbolized the challenge of, of writing this book. Uh, there were many twists and turns and dead ends. Uh, and I often felt like I was going in circles and could not find my way out. Uh, so the way I got into this topic was as a Smithsonian Institution archive postdoc in 2004. I was researching 1960s era Chesapeake science for my first book, The Oyster Question, and I kept finding references to Smithsonian researchers and administrators trying to get funding to study the possibility that Pacific sea snakes might migrate into the Atlantic through a sea level canal a big issue in the news at the time. The idea was to use peaceful nuclear explosives to blast out a more streamlined canal than the one completed in 1914, which uh, still today raises ships 85 feet above sea level and takes about eight hours to go through. Marine biologists of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama and elsewhere made the argument that radioactive fallout might be nothing compared to uh, what was then an emerging issue, mixing the oceans with invasive species. Marine biologists spent years trying to get funding for a 10 year long baseline natural history inventory of, of species on either side of the isthmus. Uh, so I was eager to start this new book project after finishing the first book in 2009, but I soon hit the challenge of being turned down for funding, just like the biologists I wanted to study. One of the criticisms I received from a major foundation was that I didn't deserve a big grant because I'd be able to write the book anyway, 
And they weren't wrong, but it took at least twice as long. I cobbled together funding from the Smithsonian, the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, my institution, RIT, and the Johnson and Eisenhower Presidential Libraries, and I'm very grateful to them all. So with my teaching load, it wound up taking 10 years and proofing it during the pandemic was a whole other thing. But another challenge early on was being scooped by a scholar who used many of the very same archival documents I had collected um, to write a book about Project Plowshare, the 1957 to 77 program for utilizing nuclear energy for geoengineering projects and other non-military applications. It was disheartening, but I eventually realized that it provided an opportunity to think about my project in new ways. I decided to lengthen the story, uh, to go back in time long before the Cold War to examine the long history of imperialist dreams of connecting the oceans across the Central American Isthmus with the sea level canal, but with a special focus on Alexander von Humboldt, the founder of environmental science himself. So one of the themes of that part of the book is that Despite the geological determinism that still pervades popular writing on the Panama Canal, it was never inevitable that it would be built where it eventually was from 1904 to 14. Uh, and also that despite the triumphalist narratives that still prevail, US officials started to worry about the canal's obsolescence within just two decades. For the Cold War period, I found other archival documents that were transformative. These included the files of the Atlantic Pacific Interoceanic Canal Study Commission of 1965 to 78. Rather shadowy group of men appointed by Lyndon Johnson, whose declassified deliberations provide interesting perspectives on the process of environmental impact assessment between the earlier Project Plowshare plans and the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. That's the US law mandating preliminary environmental impact statements for federal projects, which provided a powerful tool for environmentalists. Uh, I also wound up going beyond the Johnson administration to the post-nuclear phase of the sea level waterway under President Jimmy Carter. The last two chapters of the book examine how Carter forced the Panama Canal Treaty negotiators to include a provision allowing future consideration of a sea level canal and how environmentalist concerns about marine species exchange dovetailed in unintended ways with conservative imperialist opponents of canal treaty reform. Uh, my second prop is this basalt core sample, uh, an artifact of the atomic canal geological assessment of the 1960s. Um, I received this recently from the now retired director of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, Matt Larson. He said that many of these core samples were just dumped in the ocean after the feasibility studies and then found on the shore by Stry researchers. So for me, this artifact symbolizes the materiality of unbuilt projects, which brings up another challenge I faced. Uh, skepticism about the value of researching something that never took physical form. As a senior historian said to me, any one of us fools can write the history of a failed project. 
But as a growing number of scholars are showing, the study of unrealized, abandoned, unfinished projects have valuable stories to tell us. They have a political history, an environmental and scientific and technological history. They teach us about contingency. And also, as Finn Arna said in his recent talk on his book about recycling, that nothing is inevitable. Uh, from our perspective today, it seems unbelievable that officials seriously considered building a 50-mile-long canal with hundreds of thermonuclear bombs. But for powerful people living at the time, it made great sense to accelerate modernity using the newest, cheapest technology. So, of course, nuclear explosives could only be considered cheap by ignoring their environmental health costs. Uh, my bigger point is that we should never take it for granted that any mega project came or failed to come into being. Big projects always require a specific convergence of forces, a perfect storm, if you will, to come together at just the right time. And the proposals for such projects require a great deal of work that is indeed worthy of our attention. And my final set of props are these postcards that my uncle sent to family members when he was stationed in uh, the US Army in the Panama Canal Zone around 1967 to 68. Uh, these are a reminder of the US as a colonial power in Panama from 1903 to 1999. Uh, the Canal Zone was a 10 mile wide strip of land surrounding the canal over which the U.S. exerted control. There were several forts housing thousands of U.S. soldiers and suburban tropical neighborhoods for the civilian U.S. employees of the canal and their families. Uh, so someone in the family peeled off the uh, stamps for these cards, but if they were there, you'd see that they were issued by the canal zone government, uh, the U.S. run canals and government, I should say, and stamps and flags were a huge symbolic point of contention among Panamanians. Um, the canal zone featured U.S. flags at every turn. So here's one that you can see on this postcard. Um, and it wasn't until 1962 that the U.S. finally built a permanent bridge that enabled Panamanians to easily cross the two sides of their own nation. Uh, so writing this book took me pretty deep into diplomatic history, uh, something that was not at all part of my training as a historian of science, um, to address the complex relationship between the U.S. and Panama. Uh, so the Bridge of the Americas, or as it was called then, the Thatcher Ferry Bridge, was a concession that the Eisenhower administration agreed to in 1955 as part of a treaty that was meant to placate rising Panamanian resistance to US control and the inequitable 1903 treaty. But tensions continued to flare and the deadliest anti-US protest occurred in Panama in January, 1964. Uh, the flag riots, as they were called, led to the deaths of 22 Panamanians and four US soldiers and they shined a very embarrassing light on U.S. colonialism at a time when the U.S. was trying to convince developing nations to side with them rather than the Soviet Union. Uh, so Lyndon Johnson saw the nuclear sea level canal as part of negotiating a new, more equitable treaty with Panama that would put an end to the anti-Yankee protests 
and provide the U.S. Navy as well as the international shipping industry with a modern means of transportation that would be so easy to operate that the U.S. would no longer need to house thousands of canal employees in a special zone or neo-colony in Panama. I use the term technological anti-imperialism to discuss this, but I qualify it by saying that it was still very demeaning to assume that Panamanians could only operate a simplified waterway and also that U.S. negotiators assumed it would take so many years to excavate a sea level canal, even with nuclear dynamite, that it would buy time in terms of placating the Panamanians and thereby perpetuate U.S. power in the region for quite a while. Uh, so I will stop there and I'd love to hear your comments. Okay, um, so thank you for uh, the talk. Uh, just a reminder to people that they can uh, let us know in the chat if they have any questions and comments. Um, I thought I'd just start off by saying it's really fascinating to hear then about the well, the story of failure, of unrealized projects, and I guess also of well, of grand dreams that have not yet, I guess, faced up to reality. So could you perhaps say something about the, you know, the challenges of working with such a project, I guess, beyond dealing with the, the haters, right? <laughs> um, I mean, there actually is this huge record, um, so much so that I wasn't able to use it all. Like, I really hope that there will be many more studies I think one of the critiques of my work will be that it doesn't use Panamanian resources enough. And I, I did really try um, uh, by going down to Panama and uh, trying to use some of the archives, but they're definitely not organized the way US ones. And it's not like anyone can just walk in off the street and get access to them. Um, so yeah, but one of the big challenges was just trying to organize all the material um, figure out um, the best angles. Um, I, I kind of moved away at an early point from talking about it as a failure because um, a huge amount of work did go into it. And really what I want people to think about is, um, you know, why didn't it come into being? Like, it seems to us today that of course, that would have never happened. But for many people living at the time, uh, the assumption was that it was going to happen. The biologists in particular were very concerned. Um, and then we can even draw parallels today. Uh, so for now, that the plans for the Nicaragua Canal seem to be on hold for various reasons. But uh, biologists are still really concerned about it and are saying, like, we should never get complacent and assume that. Uh, this kind of huge infrastructural project isn't going to come into being. Um, so I, I was very inspired by this emerging literature on unrealized projects um, that's coming from people in several different disciplines. I guess that's also an important job for us historians then to, to make sure that these I mean, mega projects, big, big processes of well, many types that take place, but don't end up in something being made uh, mm. for various reasons that we do remind people that these things still happened, 
like major investments were made a lot of people spent time and effort uh working on this and of course a lot of um actual material from that so i think mm -hmm. your your core is a really good example of the ways in which just because the canal wasn't built doesn't mean that it didn't have consequences so it in and of itself had both material and ideological consequences uh, yes and this is definitely a theme of uh, some other scholars who've looked into project plowshare the the huge amount of work that went in uh, to doing all the studies behind the scenes um, so one way that i um was trying to go a little bit beyond those other studies is that uh, instead of looking primarily like at the physicists at the Livermore laboratory who did do all these incredibly important studies, I also wanted to look at these five political appointees um, who were charged by Lyndon Johnson with making a decision, a recommendation. Um, and uh, like the way they talked about environmentalism was really interesting. Like they all thought it was just a passing fad. Um, they conflated uh, marine biologists and biologists in general with environmentalists. And of course, that's an assumption that should never be made. Um, so yeah, looking at some of these different historical actors who were uh, kind of in the shadows um, was one of the, the things I wanted to do. And, um, I, another one of the props I thought about sharing was like one of the letters I received from an archive, um, my request for some material that was still declassified and they've, they've still never gotten back to me. So who knows what kinds of stories there are still willing, waiting to be told. All right. We have a question from Jerry. I'm going to unmute you. Um, hello, can you hear me? Hey, yes. Hi, Christine. Good morning. Um, I loved your book. I think your book is a great um, mix of diplomatic history, history of science, history of technology. Um, I have like two questions. One's a past and one's a, one's a present question. Um, on one hand, can you talk a little bit more about, about Project Plowshare, which I, which I find horrifying? I think people don't realize just how um, incredibly dangerous that this use of thermonuclear weapons was. Um, and I'd like you to talk also about how, how physicists and, and biologists had different views of, of the world. And I want to make a comment. When I reread your book, I often think about um, planetary engineering projects now. When it, when there was a recent project to do uh, planetary cloud seeding. I think with the Anthropocene at this point, we're going to see a lot more movement towards mm -hmm. almost terraforming projects. And I kind of, when I think about your book, I think of someone writing about something you're going to do 25 years from now, assuming civilization still exists in a couple hundred years, of people making these, people even talking about doing things that may destroy the entire planet. So I think of your book is a really amazing cautionary tale about things that, um, to, I mean, to us, we look at Project Plowshare, we look at Edward Taylor, we're, we're like horrified, but I think people may say, say the same thing in 2025 for things we're doing right now. So can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Does that make any sense? Yeah, there are absolute parallels with uh, the debates that are going on today over um, whether we can address climate change by, you know, shooting aerosols into the air to try to mimic uh, volcanoes. Um, <coughs> uh, yeah, there have been a series of really great books um, published over the past 20 years that 
uh, look at Project Plowshare in a lot more detail, um, that look at Edward Teller, you know, an interesting person who I actually, I went to a speech of his when I was in high school um, in Washington, D.C., where he was promoting the Strategic Defense Initiative to this group of STEM high schoolers. Um, so he uh, had, you know, some uh, very, like this whole set of rationales for why we should use the power of, of, of the atom for these peaceful purposes. So part of it uh, was, you know, so that people like him wouldn't be out of a job, even if there was a moratorium on uh, testing of nuclear weapons. Um, he was also talking about um, uh, being able to liberate sources of uh, coal and, and oil, like fossil fuels, um, to more cheaply uh, be able to extract them. Um, and there were not only, of course, uh, very different perspectives on uh, the use of this technology by physicists and biologists, but, but also engineers. So I, I touch on that a little in the book. Um, uh, the fact that one of the, the challenges of using uh, nuclear explosives in a place like Panama or Colombia was that the soils wouldn't uh, stand up to it. Um, so there's actually another person who's working on a, a book on that theme. Um, so the environment itself presented challenges to these grand plans for environmental transformation. And it really does show the absolute need for doing lots of extensive preliminary testing. So I had a question um, about the biologists' concerns um, with this canal and the, you know, the invasive species problem. So how did this sea level canal differ then from the Panama Canal, which was already existing in their studies? So why, why did they see this as a problem, but the other wasn't, or was it a, a different sort of problem? Um, thank you for asking that question. I thought about getting into it in the introduction, but I didn't. So, um, yeah, the Panama Canal, it has a um, pool of fresh water in the middle. Um, and the original idea, um, going back to the 1880s, Ferdinand de Lesseps, the, the engineer of the Suez Canal, wanted to replicate his success uh, in Egypt and Panama by excavating all the way down to sea level. But it was a lot easier to build a sea level canal at Suez um, than in the, the tropical, very rainy, mountainous region of Panama. Um, that was just a horrific amount of death, like 25,000 workers at least died of insect-borne diseases. Um, so eventually then, uh, the Americans took over the project. Um, even after they started it, though, there were still debates about whether the design should be a lock, which is kind of like a watery elevator to raise and lower ships, or sea level. Um, um, so the eventual decision was the lock canal because it would be a lot quicker um, to excavate it. But even um, Theodore Roosevelt's commission 
um, wanted to do the sea level canal because they were already predicting that the locks are going to be too small at some point, but it would have added like another 15 years at least. Um, so in terms of the marine species crossing the oceans, um, the, the lock canal relies on freshwater rivers, um, especially the Chagres River. So uh, the, the freshwater is able to kill off um, most, but not all marine uh, organisms that are able to make their way in. Um, so that was a big argument that the, the engineers who were in favor of going ahead with the sea level canal uh, tried to poo-poo and say that marine biologists were being alarmist by saying that there might be major extinction events if Pacific sea snakes got into the Atlantic and vice versa. <coughs> of course, that doesn't deal with the problem of ballast water. Uh, so ships have to take on ballast to maintain stability. You know, they take it up in one place, they release it in the other. Um, that was really an emerging issue at the time. Um, very little research um, had been done. This was before, you know, the Great Lakes being invaded by zebra mussels that occurred in the, the mid-1980s. But one of my major uh, protagonists of the book, Ira Rubinoff, uh, was saying, like, we need to be investing in these boring monitoring kinds of studies of the ballast water of ships on either side. Um, he was saying that to, from what they knew, like there were not enough uh, organisms being released um, to establish minimum viable populations. Uh, but even today, this is still uh, a topic about which there's a lot of um, uncertainty and, and scientists are still saying we need to do very basic kinds of studies um, on ballast water technology. So. Um, for my next book project, I am very intrigued with the idea, and I really want to, I think we need a book on uh, the history of marine invasion biology, but I, I am a little concerned the whole thing is going to wind up being a study of the technology of ballast water uh, release systems. Um, but yeah, the, the construction of invasion biology was one of my early takes on um, this project. And I think there's still a lot more research to be done, especially now that today invasion biology is considered like one of the major fields of ecology, but it's still very terrestrially focused. Um, and another point I wanted to make is that invasion biology is interesting because it is inherently a historical uh, field of study, like to understand what species belong where they do, like you have to have a long sense of history of the place. Uh, so thinking about the work of historians of oceanography, like Helen Roswodowski, you know, making the argument that the oceans have a history, they're not eternal. Uh, and changeless uh, was definitely another important insight. Just an extension of that, then, uh, with the you know the, the mixing of the oceans. Do you know then what's the the case with the Suez Canal, which is a you know the sea level canal? Has there been much mixing there, invasive species moving back and forth? 
definitely. Um, and that was one of the um, proxy sources of evidence for the, the Smithsonian researchers in Panama. They started up a collaboration with Israeli scientists um, in the late 1960s. And then they were also drawing on, there was this Oxford sponsored uh, research expedition in the 1920s, which did uh, biological inventories of the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And um, yeah, there's been so much exchange that it's called Lesepsian uh, exchange after uh, Ferdinand Lesseps. So I'm wondering then about, um, I mean, the kind of arguments that were mobilized uh, and uh, I guess the physical limitations, the reasons why it didn't get built then. Uh, if there's some kind of well, ranking of them, I mean, that I'm thinking about, you know, the, the biologists being active. I mean, this is the kind of argument you see come up in environmentalist discussions, but often, I mean, at least in, in things that I look at, those are used uh, more or less as excuses, but they really they have they have other agendas. So do you see something like that? I mean, what, what are the different motivations involved and which ones carry the most weight? Um, thank you for that question, which reminds me at another point I want to make um, is that contrary to what some other scholars have written, uh, environmentalists cannot claim credit for stopping the sea level canal. Um, the, the people who were in favor of building it were looking at political, um, diplomatic, economic reasons primarily. Um, so that's why I thought it was so interesting to look at the deliberations of this, this five-man commission. And they would come right out and say, well, environmental data is nice to have, but we don't need it in order to justify whether to make the decision or not. Um, one of the major reasons that that commission wound up recommending against nuclear excavation was that um, the U.S., uh, was just never able to conduct enough of the needed nuclear tests. Um, so a lot of this related to the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963, um, but there was also rising opposition like in Colorado where uh, nuclear fracking was proposed. Uh, there was definitely strong um, opposition to that. So, uh, this commission, they actually did recommend that a sea level canal still should and needed to be built um, due to the, the locks being too small to accommodate the world's largest ships. Um, but once they ruled out nuclear uh, means, of course, the cost uh, was incredibly high. Uh, so this is another thing I'm pushing back against, that the sea level canal idea just died, that it you know, came to a closure, to use the Hulley's language, um, once uh, nuclear excavation wasn't feasible. But uh, the fact that Jimmy Carter then became really fascinated with it in 1977, uh, I think is really interesting. And he was definitely looking at projects like TAPS, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, and the fact that it was $8 billion, but 
um, the company, oil companies were willing to invest that kind of huge money in it. Um, so I think if the international built, but uh, shipping companies were always very skeptical of the claim that tolls would not be raised. Um, and this is also at the time that container ships were greatly increasing in size. Uh, so if shippers didn't want to pay like $100,000 for the toll to go across the Panama Canal, now that their ships were so much larger, it would make sense to, to go the long way around. Um, so yeah, with the recent sewage, the Suez blockage, it was interesting to see like that ships were forced to take the much longer way. And it, only, it makes economic sense if your, your ship is huge enough. Um, to bypass it, but otherwise it really did exemplify the idea of uh, choke points, uh, you know, these uh, very tight uh, canals that we otherwise take for granted and don't even think about, you know, why do so many of our goods, why are they so cheap today? Why do we have dollar stores? Like it's because in large part we have um, these massive containers bringing very cheaply manufactured goods from other places. And of course, the cheapness is also related to other countries not having strong environmental and labor laws. Exactly. So just a reminder to people to share your questions and comments in the chat. Uh, Gabriella is next. Sure, this Christine. Um, I had a question. You mentioned the Nicaragua Canal, and that's the Chinese Canal, if I'm if I'm right. So, can mm -hmm. is is what do you know about that in relation? And 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 sort of, I'm gonna. I, I kind of like to think about in terms of Latin American American relations of you know the Chinese coming in, some of the 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 political tensions around that and ideas about new Chinese colonialism in mm. places where they have more economic power over people. Um, so I was just wondering, and if you might sort of talk about that a little bit, it might not be a lot you know about, but I was really curious. Uh, yeah, this is a great area um, that definitely needs more research. Um, yeah, connections between um, Asia and Latin America, the, the last chapter of my book, the conclusion does touch on the Japanese interest in building a sea level canal during the 1980s. Like that's another really great what if. There was very strong interest uh, among um, the Japanese Chamber of Commerce uh, and shipping industry and political establishment in building a canal. But of course they had their huge economic failure um, in the late 80s. Um, if, if that had not happened, maybe, you know, they would have financed this project. Um, so then in 2013 is when this uh, kind of mysterious Chinese billionaire investor um, was able to work out a, a lease uh, negotiation with the Nicaraguan government. And it was quite shocking to hear the Nicaraguan government say like, a year and a half later that construction has already begun and the Nicaraguan Academy of Sciences um, raised the alarm 
Um, many scientists actually drew on the uh, sea snake studies of the 1960s to uh, make, you know, part of the environmental case for why this might not be a great idea. Um, it seems to now be in limbo. Um, the Chinese government has much better um, relations with Panama now. So, of course, building a canal in Nicaragua would really cause a lot of tension. Uh, so it very much relates to all kinds of political uh, developments. So Michael wanted to ask about uh, your personal connections with the canal. I mean, since you had those postcard props and I mean, <laughs> asking us, you know, why, why are you getting so excited about the non-existent piece of infrastructure, which I mean, as to historic technology, that sounds natural, of course, but yes, tell us more. <laughs> um, I mean, frankly, I, I'm very embarrassed as an American to say that I never really learned any much about Panama um, growing up. Um, I think it really should be emphasized more as, you know, this, you know, colony that the U.S. ran until very recently. Um, uh, I, I've talked with my uncle a few times about his experiences there, and that was also very eye-opening. Uh, I have a fantastic photo of him standing in front of kind of the burned out ruins of one of the buildings that was heavily damaged during the 1964 flag riots. So this was already like three years later, and it still hadn't been repaired. And, I kind of would have liked to include it in the book, but I didn't want to ask him, like, would you be willing to be the symbol of the ugly Americans in uh, the United States? Um, uh, but yeah, the um, I think that most important personal connection for me was actually going there um, and meeting like a person who was only born in 1980, but grew up in the canal zone in the 80s and 90s because um, their parents worked on the canal and uh, this person thought it was really, you know, cool to be in the middle of the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama. Um, of course, like later recognizing like the horrifying uh, military technologies that were used against the Panamanians to justify the ouster of um, Manuel Noriega. Um, but yeah, meeting people. Um, in Panama, who had, you know, very recently experienced um, imperialism there. Um, this person also told me about the hardcore segregation, racial segregation in the canal zone um, that persisted even into the 1980s. Um, I was wondering about, um, so in the American colonialist context then of operating in Panama and, and thinking about this uh, sea level canal, how much did they liaise with other nations? So, so did they enroll in a diplomatic fashion other European countries or, you know, try and uh, build alliances um, that would facilitate uh this this new canal or was it really a, a kind of a loan project uh, this one really was 
primarily, it was a U.S.-led project, and the flag riots really exposed to the world, like the extent to which the U.S. was now operating this whole hemispheric surveillance program out of Panama. Um, so there was definitely a sense among the conservative defenders of this, the status quo um, that the U.S. needs to keep the canal zone, not so much the canal, but the canal zone, because it was this place, you know, a base from which um, surveillance activities of all kinds could occur. Uh, so there was very much a sense of concern about, you know, a rising red tide of communism uh, sweeping over Panama. Um, so especially after the the Bay of Pigs, um, and then Castro's um, rise uh, in Cuba. Uh, so this really interesting character in the book was actually a Democratic member of the House of Representatives from Pennsylvania, Dapper Dan Flood, uh, who for decades, like he was the one who um, exerted influence in Congress to try to ensure that a sea level canal or any any measures to threaten the U.S. dominance of the canal zone. Um, he always resisted, like he had a 400-page book of his speeches on the topic uh, that came out um, in the mid to late 1960s, but he's, he was still a congressman until uh, the early 1980s. And, um, I found this amazing letter he wrote to Jimmy Carter, like warning him, like, don't try to go through with this uh, more equitable canal treaty. This could be your Bay of Pigs. Um, and Carter was a really interesting president who um, didn't really worry about the political consequences for himself. Uh, he um, felt that it was the right thing to do, but he also, you know, ensured that even though the U.S. was giving away the canal, giving it back to Panama, that there are still plenty of um, provisions in place to assure um, that the U.S. would be, you know, first in line to still be able to use, utilize it. So you talked about, um, um, you know, the canals connecting the oceans, but in doing so, they also split the land, right? So where there debates uh, over you know, consequences to human and non-human environments uh, of doing so? Um, yeah, the questions of connections. Um, I, I don't really think so, um, but I think people would focus more on um, the way that the canal zone kind of accidentally functioned to preserve the terrestrial environment of Panama. Um, uh, so um, Ashley Curse has written a lot about this in his book, Beyond the Big Ditch. Mm. Um, the, the canal zone wound up becoming like this default series of um, tropical rainforests um, because there were pretty strong laws um, against um, cutting them down 
And that was a challenge that the Panamanian government started to experience then in the 1980s as the U.S. like let loosened its control. Um, you know, how do you deal with squatters um, who like are trying to provide for their families and trying to carve farms out of uh, these densely forested areas? Um, the Panamanian government, you know, did recognize that deforestation leads to erosion and you don't want to have siltation of the canal. Um, but um, even today, the Panama government, like, frames the Panama Canal as its greatest natural resource, which is very fascinating from, you know, an STS perspective. It's, it's very much a hybrid environment. I think that's a good transition to then to this kind of bigger question about what do you think are some important lessons then that environmental humanities scholars can can take away from your book, both in you know how you approach the topic, uh, the kind of material you work with, the kind of questions you asked, and so on, and I guess also the the answers you arrive at. How how can they apply in a broader sense with some lessons to to the field of environmental humanities? I mean, whether it's history, literature, uh, other fields. Oh, that is such a great question. Um, I guess, like, really, again, emphasizing the idea that nothing's inevitable, um, trying to use um, like interesting hooks like this to talk to uh, members of the public to emphasize, like, no, it was never inevitable that that canal would be built in this particular place. Um, getting people of all kinds of backgrounds to recognize, um, you know, all the different kinds of forces, economic, social, political, that are required to bring about um, big transformative projects. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm really very publicly oriented in terms of trying to encourage the public not to ever feel complacent or that they can't, um, that it's just inevitable that certain kinds of hugely destructive projects might come into being. Um, I, I also, you know, want to emphasize the theme of, um, being more aware of, um, the themes of imperialism and colonialism. And in part, that's why I, I wanted to put the word power in the subtitle. Um, Douglas Weiner has this great quote that every environmental story is about power. And that kind of blew my mind. Um, it's so obvious, but, but so, you know, not necessarily obvious as well. Um, so yeah, maybe just encouraging environmental humanities scholars to think about all the different power dynamics. And then it also kind of builds on my, my first book, The Oyster Question, a big theme was that um, we should never assume we can just take the politics out of the question of what's the best way to manage fisheries um, because there's always going to be disagreements. So they're inherently political and that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. <laughs> Exactly. And I think I mean, one, one thing that strikes me is that also you see, particularly in these big infrastructure projects, that it matters, of course, when you stop in your story as to whether or not it's, it's a 
realized project it's it's on the way up it it's you know and it can come back at any time i mean mm -hmm. when i was writing some things on um the use of offshore oil rigs as reefs and when i first did my research in california a bill had died it you know was legislatively dead it was never going to happen and then when i came back to it and opened my files again six years later or something oh by the way now there's a new bill and oh it passes so so like and and so in fact the ending was wrong right mm. so, so now it's, it's not ended and this is something i guess with these big kind of projects that shows you if politics changes they can come back to reopen the discussion so i guess just because there's no sea level canal in Panama right now doesn't mean there's not going to be one ever, right? Um, so I think that that's also for me a, a lesson of this kind of story. Yeah, that's a great way to phrase it. And um, some scholars are now using the term uh, zombie projects to kind of get at that sense that they're undead <laughs> and we should never take for granted they're never going to come back exactly so well i just want to thank christine kiner for talking with us today about her book deep cut science power and the unbuilt interoceanic canal that's out with university of georgia press um, in 2020 uh, so you all can uh, get a copy and it's available open access as well, right? Your book, Christine. Yes, that's an, a whole another part of the story. But um, yeah, if anyone ever wants to talk to me about whether you're thinking about whether to go in that direction, I'm happy to talk about it. So um, that's something that you can you can look for over at uh, University of uh, Georgia's Georgia Press's website. So um, thanks, Christine, and thanks to everybody in the audience.